Well, we're making our way through the book of Genesis, and we've come to Genesis chapter 8. So we're going to make our way through that, that chapter. Um, it's a, a continuation of the flood story. Um, chapter 6 announced that God was going to bring a destruction upon the world. Chapter 7 was a preparation for that. And now here in chapter 8, they, we find them on the ark and will depart from the ark. So the title of today, today's study is Noah, Thankful in Worship. Let's begin reading there at verse 1. Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped, and the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water decreased. So they have endured the flooding um, that has come through rain falling from the heavens, um, Maybe a canopy of water that was around the world at that time, uh, just also coming down. But the oceans, of the, the bottom of the oceans, the deep are breaking open. So these earthquakes are happening. And these subterranean water reservoirs are just filling the earth. And, and the picture I want you to have, and although we can't be definitive about this, but remember in Genesis chapter 1, God created the earth. And when he created the earth, it was... Without form, it was void. It was just a ball of water. It was a planet of water. And then through the days of creation, one of the days of creation, God created the dry ground. Remember that? So as the dry ground came into place, it displaced the water. The thought is, can't be definitive about it, but that water was pressed down into the earth and these reservoirs. As God begins to flood the earth again and the earth begins to break open in a violent way, those springs begin to come back up, and again the earth returns to that initial state of being without form and void. And so that's what's been going on here in uh, this flood. Um, but we see those great words that God remembered Noah. And God has a knows you, and he knows your life, he knows your family, and he remembers you. And he has not forgotten about you. And maybe you find yourself kind of like Noah right now. You're in the middle of a huge storm of life. You know, you're on a boat and it is being tossed to and fro. I mean, they, they say that if indeed the oceans of the deep were breaking up, you would have had these radical waves and even tsunamis that were taking place while they were on the ship. And yet God remembers them. And there may be hardships and there may be difficulties that you're facing and you're thinking, does anybody know? Does anybody care? Does anybody see? Does anybody ever really understand what I'm thinking? And the answer is, yeah, the Lord does. Your maker, your creator, he remembers you. Well, how has he remembered you? He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you. That's the most significant thing that will ever happen. But he's also attending and watching to the physical needs of your life. And know that you can call out to him. He sent his son to be a provision for salvation, just like he sent that ark to be a provision. And as Jesus died on the cross, that was only one part of it, right? There's a resurrection that's to come. Right now, we find Noah and his family kind of in the tomb, if you will. The, the death is going on all around them, and they are inside this ark. The resurrection day has not come, but that's what we're going to find is happening here in chapter 8. Let's keep reading verse 4. Then the ark rested in the seventh month, the seventeenth day of the month, 
on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters decreased continually until the tenth month. So, wow, from, you know, seventh month to the tenth month. And the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made. Then he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot, and she returned into the ark to him. For the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again he sent the dove out from the ark. Verse 11, Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And Noah knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days. And sent out the dove, which did not return to him anymore. And it came to pass in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. Hallelujah, right? You imagine, they actually end up spending, if you count the seven days that, that God announced, and one week the flood's going to start. So if they went on the ark on those seven days, they ended up being on the ark for not 40 days, right? But for 377 days. That is a long road trip, right? I mean, on there, the boat rocking to and fro, earth exploding with chaos, and they're just waiting. And knowing that everybody that they knew and everything that they had ever worked for, was all gone, was all destroyed. And so they came. One way to uh, kind of measure the time is they spent five months of experiencing flooding and floating and seven months on top of Mount Ararat waiting for the land to become dry. So many of you probably have heard that, you know, some claim we believe that we have found uh, Noah's Ark on top of Mount Ararat, which is in Turkey. And um, I don't know whether that's true or not. I just know that it has not been definitively proven. Um, would it be a great archaeological find? Oh, it would be amazing. I mean, it would be so amazing if they found this ark. But here's the thing. They don't have to find the ark for me to know that this story is true and that this is what took place. Some things are found. Some things are not found. And if it's found, it could stand as a great testimony to the world that God did judge this earth previously. And that he had mercy on one family. It could stand as a great testimony of both his judgment and his grace. And so, there, I mean, throughout history, people have said that, I mean, going back even to the first century A.D., that people said that, that it was on Mount Ararat. And down through the ages, two Russian airmen say that they saw it when they flew over. And different expedi expeditions have been, you know, done to try and find it. And they say they have, but they never have enough time to really look at it. I don't know if it is there or it isn't there. I think of all the things I've heard, the most interesting, and it's purely speculative, but the most interesting uh, thought of seeing Noah's Ark um, actually was by, I think it was Henry Morris that wrote about this in the Revelation record. He says, maybe when the, in, in Revelation, the river Euphrates is going to dry up 
And that Mount Ararat and that mountain region would, is one of the regions that fills the Euphrates River. So if that has dried up, that means the snow cap and all that has melted away. And if indeed that happened and the ark is still up there, then it would be clearly seen. And so at the end of the age that man would have this kind of archaeological evidence. See, I judged the world before and I'm about to judge it again. So, I mean, that's interesting. I like it. I like the way it sounds. I don't know if it's true or not, though. <laughs> I don't know if it's going to happen. But we do know that what we just read took place. And, you know, I, you know, at the end, I'm sure there would have been all kinds of trees and logs that, you know, were wiped out and they were floating around. Many had sunk and, you know, to the bottom. Um, but, you know, it would have been nice to have some nice dry wood in an ark to use for building. And I'm sure that thing was... You know, that was like the junkyard, I, I would imagine. I'm just thinking, people probably came and took wood from that all the time because it, was, it had been hewn, it had been, you know, gone through so much and was clean and ready to use. And you didn't have to go get all these other logs. So, I mean, I think it's, it's conceivable that that thing would have just been, over the generations, people would have just continued to take away from it and it would have been in all kinds of buildings and homes and fireplaces and and altars that we're going to read about. So, again, yeah, is it there? Maybe. I don't know. Nobody's proven it. Uh, in verse 14, though, well, actually, be, be, yeah, let's go ahead and go there. Verse 14, it says, And the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, Go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth according to, the families, to their families went out of the ark. I guarantee you that if I was Noah and my wife was Mrs. Noah, I would be in charge of the creepy things and getting them out. She is not going to touch the creepy things. She would be fine with the dogs and the cats and all those things. But I would have been in charge of the creeping things of the earth. But the creeping things of the earth, they have their place. And the whole ecosystem of the world and that, how it functions. And all of these things came off. And they came out. Every animal that exists in the world today and every human being is a descendant from those that came off of the ark. This is how the Lord provided. It's like, well, that seems like a lot to happen. You know, that one family and this, you know, one ship full of animals could repopulate the whole earth. Well, God's done it before. He had practice. He knows what he's doing, right? So it's not hard for him to do these things and to preserve and to make certain that, um, you know, these animals and the families were fruitful and there are many offspring. And this is how the Lord did it. So the God ungodly line of Canaan no longer exists. It's only now the godly line of Seth, that third son of Adam and Eve, whom God raised up after Cain, an ungodly man, had killed his brother Abel, who was a worshiper of God. And Seth came along, and then so God wiped out everybody. Noah was a descendant of Seth, so everybody um, that exists in the world today, yes, a descendant of Adam through Seth, through Noah. And then in the coming weeks, we'll see the... Uh, um, you know, the table of nations that come from his family. But he comes out of the ark. And as he comes out of the ark, he comes 
to a brand new world that he had never seen before. He had been on the planet before, on the earth before, obviously, but the way it looked and what he knew and where he went to get food and the things he went to buy, the people he knew in the community, it is all gone. His favorite views, his favorite places to go and just take in a look at that beautiful created world, all gone. Everything is brand new because that world, it became dark and it became wicked and it became evil. So as he comes out of the ark, he comes to a new place. And really, that is, that's very typical. It's an illustration of our lives and how each of us, when we were putting our faith and trust in Jesus, we have that symbol of baptism, right? That we're baptized into the watery grave. And as we come up out of that grave, we come out to walk in the newness of life. So God is judging sin and they go into the ark, but then they come out of the ark to a brand new born-again world. And, and the question is, just as it was so different for Noah when he came out to that new world, what is the relationship that we have with this world when we come out of that ark of salvation? It's different, isn't it? Some of you, like me, got saved when you were young, and so there wasn't a lot of um, you know, years and baggage. But some of you have come to the Lord later in life, and you, you can see this distinct difference between the way you used to relate to this world and how you relate to it now. Noah's seeing it for the first time. And they all would have been taking, look at this. It doesn't look anything like it used to. And it would have taken time for it to repopulate and for the trees and, the, and all the other you know, flowers to grow and to blossom and to bloom. But we shouldn't be comfortable in the old world. We should, become, we, we should have this new relationship towards it because we're followers of Jesus Christ. In verse 22, we come to the heart of our study here. Uh, verses 20 through 22, it says, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal, of every clean bird, and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled a smoothing, excuse me, a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and light shall not cease. So man was going to have a way to produce crops and, and to sustain himself and to live. It was an act in the mercy of, of God. But what we read there is Noah is thankful. He comes out, he sees this world looking so different, having gone through 377 days of the rockiest ride ever, and he can't believe it. I'm alive. We're alive. And I found grace in your eyes, and you have made a way for me. And his response is, I must worship. I must worship. And this is the third time we see a blood offering. The first time we saw the blood offering, the beginning of creation was right after Adam and Eve sinned and God made a covering of skins for them. The second time we see an offering was when Abel came with a, uh, uh, an animal from the flock and offered them up to worship. And now this is the third time we see a blood sacrifice. And the blood sacrifice is this sacrifice of the clean animals. Now, remember, the clean animals, there were seven of each of the clean animals, right? 
And there was two of the unclean animals. So if he was offering up the unclean animals, there would have been no way for reproduction to take place. So because there was seven of the clean, he takes one, so you still have six that are there uh, to repopulate the earth. But he's thankful. He is worshiping. And wouldn't you agree that based on the limited supply of animals, this is a rather generous offering that he's making. It's not like there's a whole forest full of animals to go. He takes them in. You can, no record of it, but it's not hard to imagine. Are you sure we should do that? I mean, we don't have many to begin with. You know, we need to give them an opportunity to repopulate. And you can hear Noah saying, listen, there would be nothing. We would have nothing. There would be no animals. There wouldn't even be us had God not preserved. For us to come and worship and to give back to him in this way, it is right. It is the good thing to do. It is the reasonable act of worship for us. And so he comes and he worships. He's thankful. But we too, as we sang earlier, have every reason to be thankful for the salvation that we have received. Again, we were in that ark and we have come out of that ark of salvation. The cross of Jesus Christ. We've, as he rose from the dead, we've risen to walk in the newness of life. And the response we should have is that of worship. Giving the Lord glory and honor. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 puts it this way. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Why? That you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. We have been saved to declare the greatness of God and the salvation and his mercy that he's shown to us. That's what we're to do. We have been created to worship. Now, worship is not just singing a song. It's bringing a sacrifice and it's giving of your resources. It's serving. It's praying. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Our obedience is even an act of worship. Our whole life is to be an act of worship. But that's why we've been saved. We were in darkness and now we are in light. We were in, you know, an ark and uh, spared from destruction and now we are here to to walk in the newness of life. And there should be an overflow of thanksgiving and an overflow of gratitude. Over the years, as I've pastored in different places, I've had this one person who used to say to me, um, I don't know why we sing songs. It's just a waste of time. And I'm like, it's a waste of time. He goes, yeah. He goes, I, I can't stand singing. I don't even like to even sing you know, my radio, with my radio. I don't like it. I wait till it's over to come. And my, my answer to him was, okay, well, I mean, you're being honest. But guess what? Singing isn't for you to enjoy. It's to worship God. It's to declare His goodness. It's to declare His greatness. It's for us to, to, to build an altar and offer a sacrifice upon it. When Jesus was on this earth and doing ministry, He said He had to go to a town, Samaria. He says, I need to go to Samaria. So they made their way to Samaria. And as He got there, He went to the well and of Jacob, and he sent away his disciples in town to go get food because he knew what was about to happen. And there came one woman walking up to this well to draw water in the middle of the day, a time in which no woman would ever go and do that, nor would it be alone. But she came alone because she wasn't welcome with the crowd. She had had 
multiple relationships. The man she was with was in her husband. And so here she comes drawing water all alone, all by herself. And Jesus says, I need to meet this lady. I need to have an encounter with her. I want her to know that I can satisfy that thirst. I mean, it's, to me, it's so touching. goes all the way out of his way to go to Samaria to meet this one woman and say, can I have a drink of water? You're a Jew asking me for a drink of water. You guys don't want anything to do with it. You guys hate us. What are you talking about? Give you a drink of water. And in his response to her was, if you knew the gift of God who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He's saying, you don't know who's standing in front of you right now. Can you imagine, it? and she ends up coming to faith, but can you imagine in the years to come as she thought about her snarky, kind of sarcastic back and forth with Jesus? People said, did you really say, you know, what you said to him? And is that really what you, yeah, I was not very nice. But Jesus is persistent and he's kind. He's saying, you need living water. She goes, I'll, I'll take some of that. I don't have to come draw again. But he's not talking about physical water, is he? He's talking about spiritual water. One of the questions that she has in this exchange is, well, our fathers say we should worship Mount Gerizim. You say that we should worship, your, your fathers say that you should worship there in Jerusalem. And so she throws out this kind of like um, deflection of like, well, where do we even worship? There's so many controversies. And Jesus responds to her. And I just want to pick up the last line of chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, chapter 4, verse 23. It says, the Father is seeking such to worship. The Father's looking for those who will worship him in spirit and truth, and he's looking for them. So Noah is a worshiper. Abel was a worshiper. And we are to be worshipers because we've come out of darkness. We're to be the ones that are worshiping and declaring his greatness. And not only that, the Father is looking for those that will worship him. The word worship in the New Testament and in this passage is interesting. It's the Greek word. It comes from two words. It's a compound word, but it's the word proskunio. Pros means towards. Kunio means to kiss. It literally could read, the Father is seeking such to kiss toward him. That's the word for worship, to kiss toward. And it speaks of intimacy. It speaks of a relationship. And the Father wants that. He's looking for that from our lives. That act of worship, that response of worship. You know, the interesting thing about, again, this word proscunio, it was used in everyday life. And if two people of equal rank were coming and they were meeting each other and they came, they would kiss each other on the lips. Okay, so not just the cheek, it was the lips. Now, if you met a person that was of a slightly lesser rank of you, you would kiss on the cheek. But if you came into the presence of somebody who was great, you came into the presence of the king, you wouldn't kiss on the lips and you wouldn't kiss on the cheek. You would prostrate yourself before them and you would kiss their, what do you think? Their feet. We have a couple of feet scenes in the life of Jesus, don't we? We sang about that in that song, Alabaster Heart. But there's one scene, two different scenes of women. One, a woman who was a notable sinner, comes into the house, 
And she, pour, she just falls down at the feet of Jesus and she begins to cry. She begins to weep over her sinful state. And as that, those tears hit her, his feet, he be, she begins to dry those feet with her hair. She's worshiping. She's coming to him. Another scene is of, of Mary. Mary and Martha and Lazarus. They were all brothers and, brother and sisters. He's the one that Jesus rose from the dead. And when Jesus was about to go to the cross the night before, um, as they gathered and were sharing a meal together, um, not the night before he was crucified, but that week, I should say, um, she brings an alabaster flask. She breaks it open. It's spikenard. It's a very expensive uh, perfume worth a year's worth of wages. Yeah, but they didn't make very much back then. Well, it's all relative, isn't it? (laughs) It doesn't matter what you make. A year's worth of wages is how you live. She poured it out on the feet of Jesus. And she worshipped him. And this is a beautiful picture that the Lord calls us into. We certainly are not of the same rank as Jesus. And we're not just slightly beneath the rank of Jesus. We are created people. Our proper place before him is to kneel, is to bow It's to sit quietly before him in reverence and respect. It is to bow our heads. It is to close our eyes. It is to raise our hands. All of these are commanded and exemplified bodily positions in response to the Lord. We lift our hands to him. We declare his greatness, our our surrender. We bow our knee and just acknowledge that you are over me and you are greater than me. Sometimes you maybe just in your own quiet time just laid out on the ground worshiping the Lord. This is what the Father is seeking. He's seeking for His people to come and kiss towards Him, proscuneo, just like Noah is. You can imagine the overflow of His heart, the thankfulness, the I can't believe it kind of experience. Maybe it's exactly kind of what you were expressing here earlier today. I can't believe that God sent His Son to die on the cross for me. And there was that overflow of thanksgiving and worship. But here's the thing about kissing, right? Sometimes if, if you have an intimate relationship or a close relationship with somebody, in our culture, that kissing, it's okay. But in some cultures, kissing is just a form of greeting, right? And I've, I've shared this with you before, and I, I've traveled to many of these, these places, and, um, you know, that's different, we don't do that. We used to handshake and high five or whatever. But now, you know, but certainly we don't go around kissing. Every now and then, yeah, some, some will, you know, close relationship, that'll happen. But, you know, when they go to do that, I, I can never keep on my mind, do I go left or do I go right? And that's a pretty important thing to know, don't you think? Because if they're going right and I'm going left, we're going to kiss on the lips. And that would be embarrassing. But, you know, it, it really is a beautiful thing. It's a warm, affectionate, it's, it's a way to feel, a, you know, to be a part. In a lot of these cultures, this happens. But, you know, from us coming in as outsiders, for the most part, until you get used to it, it's just like, oh, this feels very awkward. I don't even know your name, and I'm kissing you right now. But um, that's because of the lack of relationship. Worship is an overflow of relationship. Noah's responding to what God has done. The Lord wants us to respond out of our relationship with him 
and a kiss towards him, an expression. But here's the reality, and I know it well. Sometimes we don't feel comfortable with our expression, do we? We don't feel comfortable singing. We don't feel comfortable bowing. We don't feel comfortable, you know, raising our hands. We just, we feel very uncomfortable. Why is that? This is your maker. This is your redeemer. Some of you may be able to look back at a point in time when that was not an issue for you. It was open. It was expressive. It was thoughtful. It was meaningful. And it was just a flow of your heart. You are worshiping. Like Mary just coming, just like, here you go. I'm giving it all to you. You know, when you get married, you know, it's easy to hold hands and say love you and, and give kisses. But if you're not careful in maintaining that relationship, as the years go by, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, you can now, a kiss is almost feels like, wow, that feels strange. We're married and it feels strange to kiss. That shouldn't happen, but it does. And that can happen in her relationship with God. Where are you in your walk with the Lord? Here's one way, a very important way to measure your walk with God. What is your worship like? What is that kissing towards God like? Again, it's not just the raising of the hands or the bending of the knee or the lifting of the voice, although these are some significant ones. Hebrews 13, 15 says that we should continually be worshiping the Lord, offering up the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips to him. So that certainly is something. The hands, the knees, the silence, quietly before the Lord. But also our obedience. Thinking about the idea of the kiss towards being an intimate thing. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Our obedience, an act of obedience is a, it's a worship. When we give of our finances, like we see uh, Noah here giving of the resources, the limited resources, it's an act of worship. And I would say, just as we think about this and we close, two things. Don't allow your worship to become just mindless routine. Just blah, 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 singing songs, singing songs. We'll be done soon. I'll sit down and that guy will get up there and talk and we'll sing a song and we'll go, no. Engage your mind and your heart in what's being declared. Listen, we all have to do it. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you have found yourself singing a song and thinking about whatever. And you have to arrest yourself. Like, what am I even thinking? I just said, you know, I'm pouring out my, heart, you know, my entire heart, and yet my entire mind is thinking about something else. We have, to, we have to pull ourselves to that place where I'm going to be mindful and thoughtful of the worship that I'm going to offer to him. So be deliberate in that worship, but also don't let it grow cold. Don't let it grow cold with the singing of a song or raising of your hands or the bending of your knee or the offering of a gift or some kind of service to the Lord would seem strange behavior. If you're a believer and it feels strange, you just got to get over it. Again, it's not about whether you enjoy it or not. It's not whether or not you feel comfortable with it or not. He's your Savior and He is looking for those that will worship Him in spirit and truth. One last passage, Psalm chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. It's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm about 
how the Lord will judge at the end of days. And we read, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Worship Him with fear. And rejoice with trembling. And here it is. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. When His wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. The psalmist is saying, worship the Son, Jesus. Didn't know His name yet, but they knew He was coming. Worship Him. Serve Him. Trust Him. And those who choose to reject Jesus, as He was rejected when He came to this earth, They will find not one welcoming them in worship, but they will find one that's angry with them. If you don't know Christ as your Savior and you've never come to him, he invites you. Come to me, he would say. Call upon him to forgive you of your sins. Call upon him to make you whole, to begin to walk in that newness of life. That as you walk out the doors today, your whole life would be different. It would, you, the world would be different to you because you are now born again. And you're following Jesus Christ with different goals and different ambitions and different desires. This is the Lord's desire for us. Is that we would be worshipers. And he's looking for those that will worship him in spirit and in truth. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that you inhabit the praises of your people, that you walk in the midst of your lampstand. (laughs) And Lord, you are here today. And you are the, the guest of honor. And Lord, it is appropriate that we would proscunio, we would kiss towards you. They would bow, that we would lift our hands, that our hearts would be full of thanksgiving and praise adoration and amazement that you have saved us and you redeemed us and not that you just saved us but how you saved us lord we worship you 